The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. How is everyone today? I hope you're as blessed as I am. Yeah. I can't imagine um, a better way to spend a Sunday than worshiping with God's people. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, um, but your voices behind me is such a beautiful thing to hear. That your pastor gets to sit up here every Sunday and be encouraged by the people of God praising God before the Word of God is presented. Hey, Rusty, how are you doing, man? How are you doing? It's good to see you, buddy. Yeah, good to see you, too. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Yeah, about 20 years. <laughs> I remember that smiling face. <clears throat> it's a privilege to be here. It's been a privilege to serve your students over the weekend. Uh, I got to say that uh, your youth pastor, Blake, is quite a gift that God has given you. Absolutely. And you have a group of students that are quite a gift to your congregation. Um, We spent the last couple of days discussing uh, our faith, uh, the fancy word for the defense of the faith is apologetics. That may be a new term to you, or you may be intimately familiar with all of the details of the defense of the Christian faith. But my goal was to encourage your student body by giving them the tools to provide reasons for why they believe what they believe. And how important it is for believers to reason with the world, to persuade the world of the truth of Christianity. Not only that a creator God exists, but that his name is Jesus. And not merely that Jesus lived, but that he died and that he was raised from the dead to pay the penalties for our crimes against God so that we might be reconciled to him and thereby giving us the ability to answer questions regarding the problem of suffering and evil and pain which your students are all too familiar with. And while in one sense it's unfortunate that teenagers have to learn this lesson in life so early, but it's a lesson that we all learn eventually, isn't it? That life is but a moment And the Lord can call us home at any point. And without the foundation of a God who creates and sustains and redeems life, we grieve without hope. But because he lives, 
We don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve with hope. And it was a blessing to encourage your students, to be with your students, to spend time with your students, whether it was in a formal setting of preaching and worship or playing basketball or, or bouncy castles, if you saw that. <laughs> it was just a joy to be with young folks and to encourage them in the faith. And it's a joy to be with you today to encourage you in the faith. Uh, I do work at Luther Rice College and Seminary. Um, my job is to work with faculty members in developing curriculum and teaching pastors and graduating pastors so that we can hand them off to the church to serve the church, to serve the bride of Christ. And that is the joy of my life, to minister in that way and to pour out my life in that way. And my discipline that I focus on is theology and apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. And a part of my life's call and passion is to encourage you, the people of God, to stand strong for your convictions. To decide now that you're willing to stand no matter what may come for the gospel. For the gospel. And I want to work through and teach through a small passage of scripture today that is an example of how we are to engage with the culture around us for the glory of God and the consequences that may follow. I've been told that there's a saying in the Marine Corps, and if we have Marines in here, you can confirm or deny this, but regardless, the sentiment, I think, is a valid and um, beneficial one, and it's this. Better to sweat in practice than bleed in battle. Better to sweat in practice than bleed in battle. Meaning, it's better for you to decide and for me to decide here within the context of brothers and sisters in Christ that we believe this and we will stand for this and we will sharpen our minds regarding this now, here, in this context, we sweat here so that when we go into the world with the gospel, we don't bleed out in front of a skeptical world. Does that make sense? The church is for the edification of the saints. So that when your life and your words present the gospel to a dying world... They are compelled and persuaded to see Jesus as the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for many. So that the gospel might persuade the hearts of men so that we would turn from our wicked ways and turn to a gracious God who offers reconciliation. That's the gospel. That Christ died and was raised to redeem. And there's an example that we read 
in the history of the church. The book of Acts, the Acts according of the Apostles. In chapter 17, Paul, as was his custom, traveled and taught and preached in synagogues in the marketplace. If I could contemporize that for you, Paul's custom was to go to churches and to the grocery store. <laughs> he was in the town square and he was in the places of worship. And in one instance, we see that in his travels, particularly in Athens, beginning in verse 16, Paul is not only in the synagogue and in the marketplace, he's in the university, if you will. He's in the place of higher learning, where men would gather to discuss the latest ideas, lofty opinions, arguments. It was their joy to toss around the newest philosophy. And this sets the context for chapter 17, verse 16, where Luke writes, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. Can we pause there for a second? Ministry and the defense of the gospel does not primarily happen within the walls of the church. It also happens wherever you are employed. Do you see yourselves as ministers of the gospel? Where do you work? A school? A hospital? An urgent care center? The hardware store? Out on the side of Highway 138? Are you a lineman or a line person? Are you a secretary? Are you a professor? Where are you in life? I'm here to tell you that you are a minister of the gospel in the marketplace. And if Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is commanding us in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. You, my brothers and sisters, are gospel bearers. Not merely in the synagogue, not merely in the church, but in the marketplace. And we cannot remain silent any longer. You know, there's one thing that we love about polite Southern society is that there's certain things that we just don't discuss in public because we're dignified. And it's not proper to talk about politics and money and religion. But perhaps 
even though I'm a good southern boy. I should abandon this idea that polite society is not the place for religious talk. It seems to me that as I examine the scriptures, especially in Acts 17, that society is the exact place for religious and theological discussion because there is nothing that matters more to humanity than what we think when we think about God and our relationship with him. Paul is doing this every day. So verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, Epicureans being those who viewed the greatest good, the sumum bonum in life, as avoiding pain and experiencing pleasure. That amounted to what life was meant to be. The good life was to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. The Stoics, their greatest good, the summum bonum, was to pursue the mind. Intellectual virtues. As Paul is reasoning in the church and in the marketplace, these philosophers observe the things that he's saying and they conversed with him. 18b, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Notice that the Epicureans and the Stoics do not engage Paul's argument. They begin with the fallacious response, meaning they call him a name rather than challenge him on the merits of his claims. A babbler, they say. The first sign that you and I should take notice of, you have to be okay, and I have to be okay with name-calling. Is it right? No. Is it reasonable? Absolutely not. Is it good argumentation? No. But it will happen. You will be called close-minded. You will be called a bigot. You will be called all manner of things because you think that there is one way to the Father. That's going to happen. It is happening to us right now. You will throw your lot in with Paul when you throw your lot in with Jesus and people will call you babblers. They will call our students babblers simply for standing up for the truth of the gospel. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Well, at least they call that much. Because he was preaching, listen, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. Notice how they weren't telling and hearing of something true. 
but something new. Second point, new is not always best. And we live in a world, and it's not, it is not unique to millennials, it is not unique to Gen Z, it is not unique to American culture, it is part and parcel to a human heart that seeks to see the new, and because it's new, it must be best. No. We don't want to talk about the new, Rusty. We want to talk about the true. It's the truth that we're after, not the new. But these men spent their time telling and hearing of something new. And so Paul launches in. Paul says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. Now, I'm from Covington. Many of you are from Rockdale, Conyers. We drive around our city streets. We don't see idols erected in stone. But don't be fooled. They are there. They are there. Idols that seek to draw our attention away from Jesus and to money and to sex and to power and to fame and to self-righteousness and away from the Creator. Athens at least had the guts to create an idol for it. We are a little more sly than that. But what Paul notices among the idols, he saw one that had the inscription to the unknown God. What, what a superstitious bunch. <laughs> Just in case we miss a God, let's create a God to the unknown God so that we have our basis covered. And Paul sees his opportunity. He sees a crack in the door and he sticks his foot right in there. It's that God, that God that your soul knows exists. And you can't put your finger on him. You don't know what it looks like. You can't triangulate, even though the philosophers of Greece come very close to the attributes of Yahweh. They cannot grasp him through reason alone, and so they create an idol to the unknown God just to be safe. And Paul says, ah, this is the God that I create, that I come to preach. And then he begins to dismantle one piece by another, the worldview of the Athenians. And here's how he begins. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord 
of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live. The American the Caribbean, the African, the Asian, the European, the South American. If there are people on Antarctica, he made them too from one man. Image bearers of God. To live on all the face of the earth. Now Paul moves subtly from the fact that God... This unknown God created everything and is not created by us and goes into more detail. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, meaning that he is sovereign. There is nothing that occurs in this world that does not go, with, go on without the sovereign control and knowledge of the God who created it all. Do not be fooled here. We are not autonomous people. We are not self-rulers. We are subjects. And the goal of salvation is to throw off one yoke and to take on another yoke. To throw off the yoke of sin and death and to take on the yoke of Jesus of Nazareth. Because his yoke is light, his burden is easy, but he promises us freedom. What an odd concept that Pure and true and right and good freedom comes underneath a yoke. We were never intended to be free, but to be citizens of a kingdom where Christ reigns supreme. He's determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place for a specific purpose. And that purpose is this, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Why did he set boundaries? Why does he put fences around our lives? Why is there an entire book, two books, if you will, dedicated to the giving of the law and the second giving of the law? Not just for the law's sake, but that we might search for God. That we might search for him. He has set boundaries in our lives so that we might seek him and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him, as Paul quotes poets from their own context and society, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. We are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What kind of God must we serve if we create the God? 
And not only create the God, we create the God out of material that we can't create. What a foolish way of thinking. What a dark way of thinking. And Paul says, the divine, this God, the unknown God, created the stuff that you use to create your idols, okay? Right. Right. Paul makes a dramatic shift here. And it does not wash over these people as unimportant. And he moves from the creator God who cannot be fashioned by man to the judge and the righteous. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, and if this here does not send a bit of a shiver down your spine and my spine. Something is broken. And indeed something is broken. The creator God has overlooked our ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There was a time in human history where God in his grace overlooked our ignorance, but now he has appointed a time in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he is calling everyone everywhere to turn from sin and turn to him through a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all, listen, by raising him from the dead. By raising him from the dead. Not only is there a judgment, not only is there justice to be served, but God himself will be the justifier through Christ Jesus. And he has proven that Christ can justify by raising him from the dead. Now there's the parting salvo for Paul. That this creator God that can't be fashioned by human hands and cannot be fashioned by material that we find in this world not only created us and set boundaries for us that we might reach out for him, he's appointed today to weigh us and to evaluate us. But not simply to evaluate us, but to provide reconciliation through his son Jesus, a man whom he appointed and demonstrated his ability to reconcile us by raising him from the dead. Now, verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it was too much. Now, that's not in your Bible. That's Evan Posey. That's just too much. I, I could follow you. There's a creator God. There's a supreme God. Okay, there's a wrathful God. This was not news to the Athenians. Their pantheon of gods were capricious and had wrath and would strike when they were hacked off by their subjects. This was not new information. But that their God would give their son 
to die for their subjects and be raised from the dead tips them over the scale. Well, we can't hear this. Some mocked them. The babbler. It's just a babbler. This is ridiculous. Let's shut Paul down. Get him out of here. The man's a fool. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Let me put it in Covington language. Y'all come back now. You hear? <laughs> Let's get back together. Because I'm interested in what you have to say, Paul. This is new. And I'm not willing to write you off like my buddies. I want to hear you again. But praise God. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. Our message to the world is really simple, and we are experts at complicating it. There is, in fact, of course, this won't make sense to you, but to our students, this was sort of the pathway. There is a God who created and sustains all the universe. He is supremely intelligent, powerful, immaterial, spaceless, timeless, morally perfect, loving, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And there is a time appointed for everyone in this room where we will be judged according to our works. Spoiler alert. We will not pass that judgment on our merits. God has appointed a man when his righteousness is imputed to us we stand before God as one who has fulfilled the law because Christ's righteousness is ours if indeed we are in Christ now this offends our hearts but it's by the power and grace of God that we might submit. And it makes complete sense that someone might look at that and say, what a fool. What a fool. What a weak thing to propose to us that we have to take the low position and say, mea culpa, I'm at fault. I'm in the wrong. We're the smartest people on the face of the earth. Athens is the pinnacle of intellectual pursuit. We are moving up, Paul, not moving down. We are standing tall, not kneeling. And this offends their very nature. And they mock him. But some are more fair-minded. There are people outside of these walls that are in fact searching and groping because God has designed it that way. It's what we read just a few verses earlier, that the world is the way it is so that people might seek and that God is not far off 
It's as if the world is going, where is he? And they turn around, and there he is the whole time. And there's some folks that want to hear more because they are, in fact, groping. And yet there are others who are ready. Someone has planted and gardened in their life, and it is the time of life for them where the reaping is about to happen. And it is the faithful preaching of the gospel by God's people that gives the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move in hearts and harvest. And harvest. So my encouragement to you is to decide now. Decide right now that no amount of name-calling, no amount of laughing will dissuade you from being faithful to the call of the gospel. To speak it to one another in the church and move out into the marketplace and say the words, Christ can save you. People know that something's broken. People know there's pain, suffering, and evil in this world. You take God out of the equation, the pain, suffering, and evil goes nowhere. You still have to face it. And all we've done by removing God is to remove a solution. And we still have the problem. The great news of the gospel is the greatest pain, suffering, and evil, which is our own evil, can be forgiven. Decide now to take a stand. Decide now to take it on the chin. Sweat here so you don't bleed out there. Take this great news out to the marketplace. Say it to one another within the synagogue. And be a voice. Be a city on a hill. Be a light in the darkness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. Mm. And Father, we ask for your great grace and mercy to forgive us when we have hoarded the good news of Jesus and we have kept it like a trophy on a shelf rather than something to be used and distributed and consumed among every person at every part of the earth that Christ may be glorified. Forgive me, Father. And I ask that even now, you would give us all sharp minds and tender hearts and willing hands to obey your son Jesus. For it is by his merits that we are saved and for his glory that we do the work that you have prepared for us to do. For it is in Christ's name that we pray 
And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.